I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Andrew Price. Welcome to Deep Cuts, the podcast where we pick a topic and walk you through the ins, the outs, and the nitty gritty, so you can appear like an interesting and idiosyncratic person at your next forced social function. Today's topic is... Forrest Ray Colson, the man from Mars. Who was Forrest Ray Colson? Well, he was a bank robber, primarily active in the 1950s in the San Gabriel Valley. He gained local infamy by dressing in a nightmarish jet black costume that was eerily reminiscent of a skull-adorned stormtrooper. Local newspapers dubbed him the Man from Mars. Unfortunately, he would not live long enough to enjoy this infamy. Forrest Ray Colson was a friend of mine. The San Gabriel Valley in California has many bizarre and local legends and overlooked oddities. However, none of them are quite as unique as Forrest Ray Colson. But we'll get there. Born in Oklahoma on May 23rd, 1925, from the limited information available, it would appear as though Forrest had an average childhood, if not a little lonely. Eventually, Forrest Colson moved to California and went to high school in Hollywood. However, he dropped out and eventually enlisted in the Marines. From 1941 to 1947, he served, but never saw frontline combat. After returning home, he found a job at the Monterey Park Police Force. Forrest Ray Colson was a shy boy and one that was never particularly successful with women. This seemed to be something he was deeply self-conscious about. However, after becoming a cop, that all changed. In fact, a little too much. He was caught leaving his beat in order to fornicate with local girls, and the rookie cop was expelled from the force. More like fucking a calf. <laughs> all cops are fuckable. Dude was like, I'm a cop now. Just this this fucking uniform just shields my social awkwardness and lack of charisma. I'm going to hide behind these aviators and just throw down. Blue lives fuck. Ma'am, do you know how fast you were going? Because you were going the speed of fuck. <laughs> it doesn't even make sense. Yeah, so just to recap, this guy is kind of a socially awkward dude, born in the 20s. America's, America's a different place from 1925 to 1945. That 20 years, America as a culture just has a massive cultural shift, right? Great Depression happens, First World War, uh, Second World War. He's all he's all hanging out here. He's like, man, I just want to get my dingleberries jingled. But now I'm going to go over to fight some Nazis. Hey, hey Nazis, you want to jingle my tingles? No? Oh, man, I'm not even getting to kill any Nazis? All right, I'm going to come back. And then I'm going to become a cop because I have a complex about how no one wants to jingle my tingles. Is that a standard issue service revolver in your pocket? Or is it your dick? Um, I, I, it's interesting to me though, that, that he, that there's, there's very little information about him. Um, and we're going to kind of dissect that in a bit, but there's very little information about him online. He's kind of, even in the day and age where you can learn everything instantly on the internet, still kind of this weird specter urban legend. Um, <clears throat> yeah, those stories freak me out when I'm researching something and there's just nothing about it. It's like, how is that fucking true? How is that possible? So, you know, he, he comes back from the war. He becomes a police officer for the Monterey Park Police, Defor police Department. And then, <laughs> as we were just riffing on, he gets fired because he was fucking on the clock. Like, he, you couldn't just wait, bro. You couldn't just be like, yes, ma'am. Uh, you'll be able to uh, do, do the, do the, do the two-step with me when I'm not patrolling. How about that? Nope, couldn't wait. So he gets fired. And then what's even crazier is he gets another job uh, as a cop uh, for the Glendora police force about two months later. He's like, uh, you know, uh, it says here on your on your resume, it says um, you were working at the Monterey Park police force. And um, it just says that you you stopped working there. There was there's no really ex explanation. You just had, you know, kind of an abrupt stop and you have a gap of about two months on your resume. Can you explain like can you explain what happened with that? Like, why did you stop working there? Oh, well, uh, it was because I was popular, a little too popular. <laughs> did, you, did you just did you just wink and click your tongue? What does that mean? Oh, I'm just saying I don't work there anymore because I was popular, a little too popular. Yeah, you 
you you're you're winking and clicking your tongue when you say that 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 disturbs me i don't understand what you're trying to say can you be more specific like literally why did you stop working there oh because i fucked a bunch of people (laughs) oh okay well that's the exact type of person we're looking here for the glendora police force so you're hired so so he works there and then he works there for a couple months. And then one day he gets called into the, the police chief's office. And guess what? Our boy, Forrest Ray Colson, gets questioned by the police chief about leaving his post again to spend time with some ladies. So uh, remember whenever we did the interview and you kind of admitted to me that you got fired because you were uh, fucking too many people. Um, and I was like, sounds great that this is like the late 40s. We very highly value the sort of traditionally masculine idea of a, of a man who conquers women sexually. And that is sort of an indicator of how much of a man he is. So I was all on board. I was like right there with you. But I wasn't really thinking about the logistics of it whenever I said that. And uh, you you have to actually do the job. Like you, like I love that you're fucking. I love it. I w- I will watch. I'll like le- invite me. Like if you're when you're going on these little things, like I'll I'll watch. I don't even have to be involved. I'm not saying that I want to be cut in on it. I'm not saying find a girl for me. I'll just sit there and watch. There might be a term for that someday that will become very widespread and people will call it as sort of a you know an insult that loses all of its meaning. But I'm there. But you got to at least like pretend like you're working. You got to you got to like pull over a pizza guy and fucking give him a stern warning or something, something, something. You got to You got to harass black and brown people. You got to bust up a couple store windows. You got to do some union busting. We need you to do something. Intimidate four black guys and then you can go and fuck your heart out. And I'm right there with you in on both counts because this is the 40s. You know what year it is? It's 1947. We've beat the Nazis. We're invulnerable. The only thing we care about right now is fucking and oppressing black and brown people that fought for our nation's freedom. That's the only thing that we give a shit about right now. And right now, you're only doing the fucking. But all fuck and no systemic racism makes Forrest a dull boy. Forrest... He gets called in the office. The, the the police chief says, you know, <clears throat> we know you've been fucking again. So he tries to fire Forrest and Forrest flies into a rage, pulling out his service weapon and, and threatening to commit suicide in order to prove how stalwart his convictions were. He basically was like, you think I'm a fucking coward? You think I'm not able to be a cop? I'll fucking kill myself right now, like in the guy's office. I got five women out there that are just waiting for me to come out there so we can fuck. And I will kill myself right here, right now. I'm not fucking around. And then the craziest part is that the police chief actually talks him out of it. The police chief is like, bro, you're a good cop. Don't do this. You've got so much to live for. And he's like, I don't have anything to live for except fucking. And you don't even want me to do that. And the police chief's like, bro, I want you to fuck. I told you I want it. I want it. In- invite me. Invite me to the next one. Invite me to the next time you meet someone on the street that you're supposed to be protecting. I just want a seat at the table, okay? That's all I want. But don't do this. So... This second firing, you know, if this was a movie, the first time this guy comes back from the war, is listless, has, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder, gets a job as a cop, and then gets fired for making some sort of personal indiscretion, that would send him off the deep end and cause him to become, pick up a life of crime. Well, that's that's interesting, though, because, I mean, obviously we have such little information to speculate on, but... Does he have PC- PTSD? Because it does. It says that he does. He never actually saw combat. Yeah, I don't think he actually does. I was saying in a movie version of it. Because oh yeah, I, yeah, 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 yeah. Because because I oh n- I now I see what you're saying. That you're saying like the the movieized version of this story, the the biopic of it. But I was thinking, because I, I was thinking that specific thing. I was like, I was like, it's it's interesting because he goes to war, and it's almost kind of like like you're saying. It's it's almost the movie version of. A soldier returning from war and being shell shocked and, you know, they didn't have a, they didn't know why, you know, they had no um, term for it and they didn't understand it at the time. So you have these movies where it's a, a soldier coming back from World War II or, or Korea who's just like dealing with these problems and then they just don't understand it. Um, kind of just a, a wartime tragedy drama. Um and it's like almost that, but it's not quite because it's like he didn't actually fight. So it's, you know, it's, he's not he doesn't have combat post-traumatic stress disorder, 
but what it sounds like to me is that he just it seems like he just had, you know, some kind of potentially very treatable now personality disorder or maybe he was dealing with some kind of extreme anxiety or or being a manic depressive where it's like you know on his highs he engages in these crimes and on his lows he's just like trying to fuck the pain away or something yeah which is like it's just so sad because it's like not that those things are just curable now like obviously we're finally in the last 10 years really starting to reckon with and deal with these mental health crises and sometimes they're very insurmountable for people um, but at least we sort of like somewhat understand the shape of them and there are paths to, to, um, there, there are paths to healing or, or, um, managing them. Uh, and it's just, yeah, it's just so sad that it's just like these, all these people who just dealt with these things and they just had no chance because nobody understood them. There was certainly no real in-depth study of them. And even if there was, it was, you know, it was such a taboo that people just didn't talk about these things. Yeah. So, you know, he gets talked out of this by the police chief. And then from here, we're, we're not exactly clear of what happened. There's no actual documentation um, because he wasn't around anybody. He lived by himself at this point and his parents had moved back to Oklahoma. So he was just out in California being a police officer by himself. He didn't have any real tether to reality. But losing these two jobs really affected him profoundly, and he kind of lost his way. After being fired for a second time, he began a series of grocery store robberies, dressed in all black in his motorcycle cop uniform, and adorned with a nightmarish respirator, mask, skulls, and a bandolier of shotgun shells, which is... the, the reason we're doing this episode is because I saw this picture online. In fact, a listener sent this to us. Um, my friend Zach sent this listen, sent this to us. And he was like, you guys should do an episode about this guy. Look at this guy's fucking uniform. And I was just like, what the fuck is this? I, we, we, I have to learn about this. This is amazing. Um, and we'll talk about his uniform and the crime spree more in a minute. But before we get to that, I want to keep talking about what we're talking about right now. This kind of like trying to figure out the psychology of the man underneath the costume. Yeah, I mean it's like if you look at if you look at this if you look at the picture of him, if you look at him, it's it's like the it's the personification of that meme that has been circulating around for the last several months uh that is like, you know, men would rather x than go to therapy. And it's like this is this is the proto of that meme. Men would rather dress up in a death trooper cosplay outfit and rob grocery stores than go to therapy. Yeah. Yeah, it really is true. I mean, it 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 it's fascinating too because it seems like he kind of as a person had this very contentious relationship with authority where he doesn't seem like he was a particularly good student. He dropped out of high school. He enlisted in the military, either wasn't very good at navigating that system or was just not very skilled or wasn't able to learn those skills. So he never saw frontline combat. And then that seems to have put a chip on his shoulder where he then, when he got back here, was like self-conscious about the fact that he hadn't really fought in the war because that was a big... That was a big thing in the 40s, right? It was like American culture was so united behind the war effort after they got on board with the Second World War. Because initially we were like, as a culture, we were like, nah, we don't want to fucking defend those people. Fuck that. Nope. That's Europe's problem. And then, you know, Pearl Harbor happened and we were like, oh, no, this is going to affect us. Okay, let's kill them all. Fucking Alec Baldwin came out and he was like, all right, boys, we got to send you in. That's exactly what happened. It's 100% what happened. And, you know, that that kind of cultural shift, you can kind of feel its absence. That's the that's the most fascinating thing about Forrest Ray Coulson is you're piecing together someone's biography by the information you don't have. It's almost like a silhouette of a man. It's really weird. Um, But, you know, he obviously had this chip on his shoulder where he had a thing about authority and how he wanted it and how it had eluded him, which is why he became a cop, which is almost a stereotypical motivation for somebody to become a cop. Um, But he fucking sucked at it. Because he was too into the actual fucking. Yeah, yeah. He, uh, this dude, and this, this is a great prelude to, uh, things to come in the deep cuts world. But, uh, this dude would have been the fucking, uh, uh like deep QAnon believer because this is that guy. It's interesting because I, I feel like these, you know, conspiracy theorists, they started cropping up 
in the uh, mid to late 60s and then just, you know, snowballed from there. And it all coincided with uh, the American public's um, increasing distrust with the government and then with the media. And as as the distrust and the disconnect uh, grows and as levers of misinformation um, uh, start to be built into the uh, American social ecosystem um, to the point where it's gotten to the it's, where, where it's gotten to the point where it's like, you know, if you can deep fake a face onto somebody's body and make them do whatever you want, then like literally you cannot trust your eyes to believe anything. So, you know, pe- the people who are into, are into these things are just like they're, they're just overwhelmed with paranoia and lack of trust. And that kind of started in the 60s. And as you kind of alluded to, that really wasn't the case uh, in, you know, it, towards the end and post World War II. Like it was one of the most nationalistic periods in our history where people were almost unanimously like, fuck, yeah, we fucking fucked those people up. This is the greatest moment. And this, this is the culmination of everything that the founding fathers uh, fucking built this country to be sweeping nationalism, sweeping approval of the American government at the time. And this guy was like, he was like uh, born in the wrong time. He he was somebody who should have been, uh, you know, fucking ranting about John F. Kennedy in the in the late 60s or something like that. But instead, he was like in the middle of this world that he didn't belong in because he wasn't a part of it. He he went he he failed at being become being one of the hero soldiers he failed at being a cop. He just did. He just didn't fit into this whole paradigm. And <laughs> as opposed to, like I said before, later on, is that stuff started happening, and then you have these counterculture conspiracy nuts who start, you know, the the fucking Bill Coopers of the world, and then later on the the Alex jo- Alex Joneses of the world and stuff. Because he didn't have that outlet and because if he started ranting about that stuff, well, maybe I'm jumping ahead of something you're going to say, but a better description of him is that he is fucking Richard McCaslin, like in a but in the wrong time. Whereas, I mean, obviously, Richard McCaslin's life didn't end up well either. But, you know, when he went on his crazy rampage trying to like fucking infiltrate uh, this organization or this clubhouse and like uncover this satanic cabal of child molesters or whatever like he actually had people on his side he had people rooting him on and he had people being like agreeing with him and being like yeah that's true go fucking do that bro and then he was like to some people he was a hero afterwards this guy is like Richard McCaslin if literally nobody in the fucking world would not have thought he was a, a lunatic yeah because it because at the t- at the point where richard mccaslin became obsessed with comics and built himself a costume and got radicalized by fringe conspiracy theories and then developed the phantom patriot persona there was there was enough common understanding of the like visual tropes and paranoia that he was engaged in that people understood as opposed to as opposed to forrest ray colson who it really feels like is an island of a man. Like it's it's very very depressing. Like it really is. You can feel the sadness just like radiating off of the like three newspaper articles that exist about him. Um, which you know, I mean, I think we should probably take the commercial breaks. So we can come back and then talk more about his the visual aesthetic because I have so much to say about his costume. <laughs> Hey everybody, my name is Hilsmer Spacha Demon, the Space Hell Demon, and Andrew and Dave are forcing me to- What are you talking about, Hilsmer? Nobody's forcing you to do anything. You literally barged in here in the middle of me recording this promo and insisted that you do it. You said that I sucked at it and you could do it so much better than me. Yeah, exactly. I'm being forced to do it because you suck so much at your job. So anyway, Andrew and Dave are forcing me to get on the microphone today and kind of go over a bunch of the cool deep cut stuff that's going on right now. So first and foremost, Dave is coming out with a new Pixie Box book which I guess are apparently called comics now, all of a sudden. But uh, yeah, the book is called Everyone is Tulip, and it's coming out June 29th, available in all sh- comic stores and stores in general, I guess. And uh, it's it's written by Dave, and it's drawn by Nicole Gu, and it's colored by Ellie Hall. And it's basically about an aspiring actress who moves to L.A. to try to make it big, 
and then she ends up sort of doing these weird experimental performance art YouTube videos and gets mixed in with this sort of identity-shattering underbelly of Los Angeles. Uh, yeah, so that, that book is coming out uh, June 29th, and you can actually read the entire thing by going to everyoneistulip.com, where they're releasing the book page by page as a webcomic leading up to the release of it. Also, you can get official Deep Cuts merch by going to deepcutspod.com and clicking on the shop, or you can go to bit.ly.com slash deepcutsmerch, and you can get t-shirts, you can get hats, you can get coffee mugs, you can get baby onesies. You can also get a Mystery Treehouse Investigation Agency patch that you can put on a backpack or put on your jacket uh, by going to deepcutspod.com and going to the shop, or you can actually get that at Dave's shop at heydavebaker.com, or you can get it at Andrew's shop at dapricerights.com. You should also follow Deep Cuts on YouTube by searching Deep Cuts, where we are going to be releasing some cool, interesting, long-form video in the coming months. You can follow Deep Cuts on Facebook, where Dave and Andrew put out these, like, reaction videos where they watch old movies and kind of react to them. You can also join the Facebook group, which is a group where a bunch of Deep Cuts listeners go to kind of hang out and talk about episodes or talk about random, interesting subjects. A lot of episodes are kind of born in that group. There's a lot of memes that happen there. It seems like a just a fun place for fucking nerds that like this bullshit would hang out. You can follow Deep Cuts on TikTok at Mystery Treehouse, where they do short form explainers. So if there's an idea that's like not long enough or in depth enough to do like a full episode on, they'll do like three minute explainers on TikTok. You can also check out all the different books and projects that Andrew and Dave are releasing on their websites, dapricerights.com and heydavebaker.com, where they put out comics and books and video projects and anything else they're doing outside the Deep Cuts world, such as Dave's books, Fuck Off Squad and Action Hospital, or Andrew's book, Deadbolt AI Private Eye. And finally, if you go to deepcutspod.com and scroll to the bottom to sign up for the mailing list, you'll receive a semi-regular newsletter called the Mystery Treehouse Investigation Agency Circular, which collects all the news and new content that Andrew and Dave are putting out and kind of puts it in one place, as well as provides some more commentary, and maybe in the future there might be some cool behind-the-scenes info that's going to be released there. There. Are you fucking happy? Once again, Hillsmer, you didn't need to do that. You insisted, and in fact, I would have preferred to do it. Is that the thanks I get? Get out of here. Act 2. Everyone is talking about the man from Mars. Over a 10-month period, Forrest Ray Colson robbed five grocery stores, gaining over $50,000. Also, remember, this is $50,000 in 1947 money. Like, this is like, that's a shitload of money now. This is like 300 grand or something. Let, let, me, let me look this up. Yeah, let's, I mean, even if I put it at 1950. $50,000 back then was the equivalent of $551,000 today. Jesus Christ. He's the Jeff Bezos of robbing grocery stores dressed as satanic stormtroopers. Forrest Ray Colson had a peculiar system. After every robbery, he would drive back to Oklahoma, where he would visit his parents. He would lay low for a while. But the strangest thing about him and its string of robberies was his costume. All right, so uh, do you want to describe his face or his costume? Which one do you which one do you want to describe? And I'll describe the other one. Well, his I really like all I could say about his face is he looks like a cop. That's it. Uh, the thing I would say about him is he he looks like he's about you know five ten six one somewhere in there. He has what appears to be either light brown or dirty blonde hair. Um, very traditionally handsome, strong jawed, um, clean cut features. He looks kind of like uh, like a slimmed down version of the actor from the 1950s TV show The Rifleman, Chuck Connors. If you're familiar with Chuck Connors, he looks he looks like a slimmed down version of Chuck Connors. Very all American, very kind of almost Hitler youthy. <laughs> Um, his ears appear to be a little larger than a normal person's ears. They're kind of like splayed out a little bit, but that's like the only feature that he has that isn't traditionally handsome, which is fascinating that he had this thing where he like either felt self-conscious about not pulling women or was just a fuck boy or some mixture of the two, because this guy doesn't seem like the type of guy who would leave a job to have sex with somebody because it. From appearances, seems like he would just be the dude who kind of like low key can date as many women as he wants. You know what I mean? And and he fucking did. Yeah. Um. All right. So how would you describe the man from Mars? Oh, just uh, because I didn't write it in the script. Basically, 
So this 10-month period where he's robbing all these grocery stores and makes all this money, um, he starts developing this kind of like urban folklore around him and people start calling him the man from Mars, um, which I don't really know where that comes from other than I guess it looks like he's kind of wearing like a space suit almost because he's wearing a, a, a gas mask respirator. So I guess people think that he looks kind of like an alien maybe. Yeah, I mean, I kind of likened it to the fact that in Back to the Future, whenever Marty goes back in time to 1955, he's wearing that hazmat suit and people think that he's an alien because of that. And it's funny because the Back to the Future was almost called the man from Pluto. One of the executive producers at at the studio, he hated the, the title Back to the Future. And he said he said that nobody would pay to see a movie called, with the word future in the title. And so he suggested that they name the movie The Man from Pluto, which is like a reference to that one scene where he appears at to in front of George McFly as uh, Darth Vader from the planet Vulcan. And the way that they got out of it was Steven Spielberg strategically. Um, he sent a he sent a fax to the studio suggesting the title change. And strategically, Steven Spielberg sent back a, a memo or sent back a fax that was like, hey, uh, that joke fax you sent was really funny. We all got a kick out of that at the office. And then the guy just never mentioned it again. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, so to describe uh, to describe old dirty Forrest Ray Coulson's get up here a little bit more. Um, so he's wearing a black he's wearing black motorcycle pants, like the kinds that have those weird like flayed out calf things i don't know why pants have those but yeah just like a like like jodhpur looking things like the pants you wear when you're like riding a horse yeah where like the the calf kind of like there's like a giant air bubble in the side of it for some reason um so he's wearing those type of pants and then he's got a black belt that has um dual holsters that are carrying um 38 caliber pistols that each have a bone um bone handle and then he's carrying a very large shotgun he's wearing a button-up long sleeve black uh pullover that is the same type that a motorcycle cop would wear but on the breasts where it would normally have like the cop's ID number and their badge, he has two skull and crossbones. And then he has a giant bandolier of shotgun shells. He's wearing motorcycle rider riding uh, like boots and uh, a gas mask, goggles and a motorcycle helmet with a giant skull on the top of it. And I hate to be this way, but this is my favorite character design ever. It's a really well coordinated outfit. Like it doesn't it doesn't look like some thrown together thing by a fucking dummy. Like like it's it's like a really well put together costume. It's it's once again similar to the Richard McCaslin thing where his costumes are just like what the fuck? Like this is like this guy is like a he's like if he had been born in a different like circumstance, he could have been like an amazing costume designer for movies or something like that like that that's the sense you got from him he was he was this really creative guy who just had a bad hand dealt to him and this guy is like the even more proto version of that where he had an even worse hand dealt to him but there's like you look at this and you're like oh yeah this this dude was like aside from all this shit of him these these outbursts that he had and getting fired from job for these clearly self-destructive behaviors and all this stuff. He just like obviously was create was very creative in a way that he probably didn't understand and also just wasn't socially acceptable at the time. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious if he was into like pulp novels because this costume just doesn't look like something you would just like come up with on your own. Like it's so striking visually that it's like i'm so curious if he was into doc savage novels or you know uh men's adventure pulp fiction or some something along those lines because it's super fucking rad like it's it's so so sad that he felt the need to engage in criminal activities in this way he looks like, he looks like a bad guy from mad max he looks cooler than that though because there's there's no like faux post-apocalyptic aspect to it like he looks like a fascist executioner you know what i mean like and the other thing is like so we're looking at this these 
all of these photos, which are like, uh, there's probably about six photos that exist of his uniform. Um, and the, the question I have is, who is this posing in these photos? Because it can't be, it can't be Forrest J. Colson, right? Or Forrest Ray Colson, right? Because wouldn't he be fucking dead? Yeah, back in the 40s, he wouldn't have been able to like set up a camera and take a selfie or whatever. So like, yeah, who took the picture? Yeah, who took the picture and is this him or is this like a cop wearing his costume for the sake of displaying it? <clears throat> yeah, it must be that. It must be that because like, yeah, like you said, literally who would have taken the picture? Yeah. And it's also interesting too, like can you, so this draw or a photo here where it's a high angle looking down at him, um, can you read what that says on the right of the photo? There's like something written in cursive all, all along the side of it in like grease pencil. Um... <laughs> um, trying to, I'm pulling up a well. Fuck, I can't read any. I can't read any of it. Like, is that first word print or pint? It's like P something I something T, and then the next word's A. Print a. I have no idea what that next word is. Yeah, I can't, I can't read these at all. Yeah, apparently a, a a doctor wrote a prescription on the side of this photo. Yeah, I can't. I can't read a single word of this. Yeah, it's really loose cursive that. Oh yeah, this is a. Uh, I kind of found a much clearer version of the picture of him without his mask on than than the one you have. Like this is this one's like printed in a newspaper, but uh, I just found I just found the actual original photograph of it. Oh cool! Wow, he looks like a completely normal dude. Like he's got little big ears, maybe. But look at that chin, man! He's got chin for days. What up, homie? I can't tell if that's like a hint of a sort of Vincent Price type mustache or if it's just like the, the the shadow is like overly contrasted because of the black and white i have no idea also forrest rc colson <laughs> he was fun fact he was named during a contest where rc cola was offering rc cola for life for anybody who named their child after the company one question i would ask you is is what do you think this costume says about the person wearing it I mean, yeah, I mean, kind of like what I sort of already said a little bit, which is like, like Richard McCaslin, it gives and it's interesting that there's very little information actually about this because, you know, in that in that vacuum of lack of details, um, this is kind of a fun, uh, a, a fun story and person to look at all of the sh little shreds of information you have and fill in the blanks. And, um, and, and it's interesting because the there's so like the little pieces of details that there are are so um they kind of speak volumes in a way that really helps you to fill in those blanks um so like i said before to me you know one of the one of the aspects of it is this is a person who probably completely unbeknownst to themselves because of the time period had this very creative spark that they didn't quite know how to define to themselves um, it just, it just wasn't a, it wasn't a normal thing that was even talked about or understood that, you know, a normal dude would like be into designing costumes and becoming creative with like visual design and stuff like that. That's just not a thing that existed that anyone talked about. Um, so he probably didn't understand why he wanted to do this, um, and uh, but but that there was some some kind of creativity in him. Uh, and then also, you know, like you said, like sort of we were talking about earlier and kind of what you were saying in the in the narration is, is he, you know, he he seems like somebody who wants to be he wants to feel like he has some kind of authority. He wants to be revered or if not revered or respected, then at the, at the very least feared. And he sort of externalized that in this costume, which is designed to be like, oh, yeah, well, you know, if I'm going to be in the military and, you know, they're not going to take me seriously and they're going to, you know, kick me out without being able to go into combat. And if I'm going to be a cop, they're going to fire me and I'm not going to be able to do that. Then, like, I'm going to make them acknowledge my authority by dressing up in this scary ass costume and just intimidating people with my with my look. Yeah, I think that's right on. I mean, I think uh, I don't think you try and evolve yourself into a specter of death because you're really happy with how things are going. Yeah. And and kind of what I was saying before, the, you know, whereas like this guy, like uh, Forrest didn't have a 
bohemian grove um, or a network of conspiracy theories to throw his aimlessness and feelings of loss of control into. So in that vacuum, he threw it into robbing grocery stores in a fucking weird costume. And then on the evening of Thursday, October 11th, 1951, Forrest Ray Colson was killed. This is a Time Magazine article released Monday, October 22nd, 1951, documenting Colson's death. Forrest Ray Colson was a thin, pallid, blonde boy. His hands were soft and white, and he wore gloves whenever possible. But for all this, he wanted to be a big hero and have lots of girls. At 16, he left high school in Hollywood and joined the Marine Corps. He served six unrewarding years from 1941 to 1947. He saw no action, won no medals. Colson went to Oklahoma City and moved in with his mother. The 26-year-old hero seemed to have plenty of money saved. He bought a maroon and black Ford and took occasional trips back to California, where he dropped in at the Monterey Park Police Station to ask for a fresh chance to become a cop. One evening, last week, a woman clerk who had just started home after her day's work at a San Gabriel, California supermarket saw a frightening apparition climb out of an automobile at the rear of the store. Its face was covered by a black mask, dark goggles, and a gas respirator. It wore a black helmet decorated by three metal antennas and a skull and crossbones, was dressed in a black shirt, black pants, black boots, and black gloves. It carried a shotgun, wore two bone-handled 38s on its hip and a bandolier of shotgun shells. The apparition strode through a back door of the supermarket. The woman ran for a telephone and called the police. The masked figure had been robbing suburban Los Angeles supermarkets for 10 months and had gotten away with more than $50,000. Anywhere else, a man in a spacesuit would have attracted attention. But in Southern California, eccentrics were so common that supermarket clerks refused until too late to get excited at the appearance of a man from Mars. But this time, the police arrived just as the apparition was leaving the store, clutching $13,675 in a canvas bank bag. As it began leveling its shotgun, a patrolman fired one shot from the hip. The figure fell, shot through the temple. The cops pulled off the mask and helmet, and there lay Forrest Ray Colson, back in uniform. He died two hours later. I mean, while I was researching this whole thing, the... Every at every juncture, I was like, man, this would make such a cool movie, which is almost in some ways kind of a disturbing impulse to have because it feels like that's what he would have wanted. You know what I mean? Like it's it's that same kind of like the Mark David Chapman idea that he did this horrible thing in killing this artist in order to gain attention and become infamous. And then we've all given him exactly what he wanted. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the catch-22 of any of these things. I mean, we're all, we're all guilty of it in varying degrees, whether it's just generally culturally or, you know, people in the media uh, in the way that they, uh, you know, weigh, weigh the scales of relevance down in certain things by the mere act of acknowledging them. Uh, I mean... Uh, you know, to go back to this, to the subject again, you know, the media basically created QAnon and, you know, we're, we're going to, we're going to be doing a large multi-part episode series about QAnon. So we're a part of that for sure. Um, but we're certainly not the only ones, you know, uh, QAnon has become this large, um, part of the cultural zeitgeist, whether it's media, uh, you know, discussing it writing articles about it, reporting on it in the news, people writing books about it, um, or just people in general. I mean, people, uh, you know, love to talk about it and they love to post about, you know, how dumb or mentally ill or misguided these people are. They get into arguments with people online about it. And that all of that has um, sort of it, the moment that people started writing articles and books and it started being talked about on actual like cable news and stuff like that it, that that gave it legitimacy that helped it grow and thrive um one of the one of the worst moments i think in the legitimization of qAnon was the moment that that reporter asked donald trump about it at a press conference that was like that was in my opinion and i'm going to talk about this a lot more in the qAnon episode such a misguided thing to do um but but, uh, you know, the, the, but the, but the flip side of that and what, what makes it a catch 22 is I think that people ignored it and didn't talk about it for too long. And in a vacuum of discussion of people taking it seriously and acknowledging it, I think for a long time, people just wrote it off as any other bizarre fringe conspiracy theory of just like, you know, and I, I knew people like that, like, because I'm so entrenched in social media and the internet from my job and this podcast and, just in my sort of obsession with clarifying and and uh, categorizing information, 
I was sort of abreast of the information very early on. And so I would talk to people about it. And I was kind of, you know, like I talked to someone like my wife and I, you know, I, I was always kind of like early, early on. I was like, I, I, this is kind of scary. Like, I, I feel like this is some, like, this could be very bad. This isn't just like, oh, these crazy people ranting. Like, there's things that are sort of bubbling under the surface of this that I feel like, you know, with the way that they're like, you know, they'll, they'll accuse some random person of being a pedophile and they'll falsify these documents and then they'll start harassing this person. And then people will actually like, you know, the Comet Pizza thing. Somebody literally went to this place with a gun and all these things like that this this seems like it could become a real issue and people would always just be like oh they they just didn't care about there's that that's just some dumb thing like those those people like the the reaction was always like oh there's those are idiots they're 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 idiots like it was just a total like brushing off of it is like these are just a bunch of wackos online um so it's like a, it's it's like a, it's a catch 22 it's like the what the fuck do you do like you can't ignore it you can't not take it seriously but then also like talking about it and acknowledging it gives it power and you know it's just it's impossible to really understand what what the right thing is to do or if the right thing to do is even achievable like maybe our, we talked about this a lot in the Chris Hansen episode, but maybe that's just not possible anymore in the way that our society works the way that we've become so obsessed with with um with uh, the the sort of pop culturalization of all information, um, the the internet and s- social media has democratized information into this twenty four hour um, fucking circus of of uh, drama, and you know, w- with the way that information is disseminated, maybe it's just impossible. Maybe there, maybe there's maybe we're just we're just in this. Um, the, the way that our society is designed from the ground up is just it's inevitable that anything that exists is going to inevitably be pushed and pushed to the point of becoming a, a character caricature of itself. And in some cases, something becoming a character of it, a caricature of itself is very dangerous because somebody like, you know, Forrest Ray Colson, um, obviously he died, but somebody like him becoming a caricature of itself and becoming legitimized in pop culture can inspire other people to do things. And maybe that's just inevitable with the way that our f- society functions. Um, yeah. I, I, I don't know. I don't know what the right thing is to do in that regard. I mean, obviously, I mean, we, we did, we, we've done episodes on people like this. We fucking had Mark Sargent on the show, you know, in, 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 in a way we gave him a platform to just continue talking about his bullshit. Um, we're doing the, we're doing the Q on episode. Like we are, by far not like being being self-aware of this is is in no way um absolving our myself or ourselves from it or saying that we aren't part of that that we're above it like we do it too but i i don't know what the answer is to like what the right thing is to do and or if there even is a possibility of doing a right thing yeah i mean at this point like the way the internet flattens everything and the way people seek out information that only reinforces their own opinions including the listeners of our show like and you and i right like you know, we're not here having a debate with Mark Sargent. I asked him if he ever wore board shorts, you know, like, it's not like we were taking the brass tacks. I mean, yeah, I think I was a little bit more aggressive than you. But that's not to say that I was doing the right thing either. I was trying to just I was just shocked that he said yes. You know, I was just shocked that the guy who like low key restarted the flat earth movement was going to come on our show, talk to us about emo music from the 2000s. I was like, this is surreal. And then he came on and I was just like, I see why you get places. Because you're almost like white privilege incarnate. Because you say these crazy things in this very demure, just kind of, hey, huh, yeah, I just think, uh, you know, if you look around, like, it doesn't really look like the world's round. It just kind of looks like it's uh, like it's flat, you know? Like, uh, maybe there's a Goro god out there, you know? Like, uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't have the answers necessarily, but, like, just kind of seems like we're all living this weird, meaningless existence where no one loves us and there's nothing important that we do will ever be remembered, but, like... What if that wasn't the case? You know, like just what if, what if, what if, uh, what if we were in a snow globe in space? I don't know. I don't know. Vaccines. They're, they're giving your kids autism. You know, it's totally, it's totally what's happening. Wake up sheeple. And like, it's just this very, he's almost kind of like the reverse Trump in some way where Trump figured out how to tap into people's nascent rage at the inequities of American life. And Mark Sargent was able to worm his way into so many people's 
subconscious by vocalizing their casual ignorance that they would probably just normally put away you know like you look out and you're like yeah and it's like the you know when you, when it happens to everybody at certain scales like you see those articles on the internet that are just like uh, according to this study uh, drinking three cups of coffee a day is good for you or like according to this study eating chocolate prevents cancer or whatever and you have all these people who are just like, oh, like the I this 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 makes me feel less guilty for the fact that I eat so much chocolate or the, this makes me feel better about the fact that I drink so much coffee. So, y- you know, the, I'm not saying that everybody just immediately believes it sight unseen and doesn't read the article. And maybe some people do, but you're way more likely to just accept it as fact instead of as what it actually is, which is some random study that somebody uh, conducted that they published as as a journal that is unsubstantiated, hasn't been peer reviewed yet. Somebody just, you know, these fucking these I fucking love science people. They just sit there reading scientific journals as they're published, looking for clickbait, publish this article. And, you know, in that case, it's rarely it's relatively harmless for you to just believe and adopt the idea that eating chocolate prevents cancer or whatever. I mean, I, I guess you could argue maybe that's harmful because you make you eat more chocolate or maybe if you got cancer you would think that eating chocolate would cure it like there could be some indirect harm for that but relatively harmless when that affects you but then this is like the bigger version of it where it's like oh i'm not just trying to validate my the fact that i eat too much chocolate or i drink too much coffee or whatever i'm trying to validate my like crushing existential depression and the fact that i just feel like this I feel aimless and like I have no purpose. And then this thing fixes all of that. Even if I don't even really care about the actual details. I don't care about whether the, I don't really actually care about whether the earth is flat or not. I don't really actually care about proving that this is just a permission structure for me to feel better about this specific anxiety that I have or the specific um, psychological uh, hang up that I have. Which seems like that's a perfect segue back into uh, Forrest Ray Coulson because he obviously was self-conscious about his relations with women, his level of personal autonomy and authority, his upbringing. You know, it seems like he was probably pretty poor when he grew up. And so all of that goes into making this persona of the man from Mars where he makes these this elaborate costume. He takes the law into his own hands. He uses the skills that he gained by being a police officer and a military uh, officer and uh, starts robbing grocery stores, right? And all of this kind of plays into this one person's theatrical expression of I am here, you know, I am, period. And and it's it's fascinating that some people take the that theatrical impulse and channel it into trying to be an actor or trying to open up a business or, you know, embarking on various conquests. But for him, it was so blatant. And I think there's something deeply Freudian about the fact that he was going back home every time. Like, yeah, I yes, I understand that he was, you know, laying low while the police in California were looking him for him. So he drove to Oklahoma because it was not there. I get the logistics of that, but that's not what that is. That's him as a person trying to prove to his parents without ever telling them, right? Like there's this weird self-flagellizing thing of like, I'm going to move back in with my parents and I'm going to be kind of this fuck up, but I'm going to know. I have the equivalent of 2021, $500,000 underneath this cot. I know that I'm better than them. I know that I could buy the house that they're currently paying the mortgage on. I know, but it's this weird, almost like he wants to get, he's like cucking himself. It's like he wants his parents to be angry at him and for them to be like, Forrest, when are you going to get a fucking job, man? What the fuck are you doing, bro? You can't live with us anymore. And like, he's like, I'm sorry, I'll get a job. And then looks over at the fucking cot in the corner of the room that has a suitcase with like $50,000 in it. Yeah. 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 And it's like, it's, it is like that power fantasy that you see in comics like you see in like Spider-Man where like it's it's like a it's like a specific porn moment that they do in every iteration of Spider-Man where it's like, yeah, sure. There are the moments, the power fantasy moments where Spider-Man or a hero character like finally gets revenge on some bully or whatever. 
But even more than that is the trope of Spider-Man has a bully, Flash Thompson or whoever it is, and he's been beating him up and pushing him around for years. And then he becomes Spider-Man. Secretly, he's like the strongest man in the world. Like he he's he's got this insane superhuman strength and he could literally just crush Flash Thompson with his with his thumb but he can't reveal his secret identity because he just doesn't want to reveal his secret identity. So he like has to pretend he has to like keep up a kayfabe that he's still a weak nerd by letting flash beat him up, even though he could crush him. And then he has those internal monologues where he's like, you know, I could, I could, uh, you know, I could drop him in a second, but I I can't let anyone know that I'm Spider-Man. And then he's like, Flash, like, stop hurting me or whatever. And it's like, that's like the weird, more nuanced power fantasy where it's not like, oh, I finally get to beat up my bully now that I'm like have superhuman strength. It's like the knowledge that I'm better than you, but I'm so much better than you that I have to like pretend like I'm not, but I know that I am. And I get to like it's like it, it 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 removes all the power from the bullying or from whatever the oppression is because you're letting it happen because if if you wanted to you could end it in a second yeah and there's there's you know there's something deeply fucked up about the fact that he's going to the place where his mother is like there's a there's like there's that level which is definitely happening but then there's another level where it's like he wants to be viewed as less than by his mother, who is his archetype for the women who rejected him. But he wants to secretly know that I'm actually better than you. And it's 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 this weird Oedipal complex or Electra is it Electra complex or Oedipal, whichever, whichever the fuck one it is. Um, where it's like, I could prove to you how much better and how much more successful I am. But I'm just going to leave this $50,000 in this suitcase underneath that cot. And I'm going to I'm going to put up with you nagging me to go get a job. You know, I don't need a fucking job. I don't I don't need a job. I have a job. And it's being the fucking man from Mars. Yeah. Men would rather do that than go to therapy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's fucking true. Um, so today, uh, our boy, Forey Ray Ray Colcol is, uh, is buried in Oklahoma City, in Oklahoma County, Oklahoma. There's a lot of Oklahomas. He's got the triple oak. Uh, he's buried in a, in a, in a cemetery called the Mo- Memorial Park Cemetery. And his gravestone reads, Forrest Ray Colson, California, CLP Marine Air GP-15, World War II, May 23rd, 1925 to October 11th, 1951. He was 26 years old when he died. And then an even smaller print underneath that, it says, also dressed up as a death trooper and robbed several grocery stores before being shot in the head. And the weird thing about this is that his story is so bizarre, you'd think that it would be a bigger thing in our culture. And it's not at all. Like, it's nearly completely forgotten. Yeah. And it's like, what is the reason for that? Because we have we have we have so many stories that are like very big in in culture that are like kind of similarly lack detail or don't there's not a lot to them. Like, you know, I mean, and I'm not sorry. I'm not it's not to downplay or rank or whatever, but like the Black Dahlia murder is this huge thing that everybody knows about. There's a there's 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 multiple movies either about it or that incorporate it in some way. And it's 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 a woman was murdered and nobody knows who did it. Like that, that's the extent of the story. She was like a struggling up and coming actress. She was found gruesomely murdered and they never figured out who did it. That's the extent of the story. That's, that's obviously a very tragic story, but I'm just comparing it to this. It's like, why does one, what, what is the psychological or what is the psychological or the sort of logistical reason why one of these stories would be uh, remembered more than another one? Or even or even like, you know, uh, Dillinger or any of the like 20s bank robbers, like a lot of those guys were like fairly normal ass people. This motherfucker dressed up like a supervillain, a literal supervillain. And like our culture has just been like, Meh. And he was running like, and just to reinforce what I'm saying, he was he was like on a he was on a bank or not a he was on a robbery a robbery spree for ten months. Like this wasn't like oh he did this and then like it was like a weird isolated incident and then he got killed or whatever. Like he was like he was like ravaging the fucking California suburbs. 
for 10 months, he would just pop up and rob places. Like that's, a, that's enough time for people to nickname him and be like, there's the man from Mars. And then just nobody remembers this. It's, it's very strange. Well, you know who one 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 person who remembers him? It's actually four people. Is the band the Hex Dispensers because they have a song titled Forest Ray Colson, which we are now going to listen to. And by default, you, dear listener, are also going to listen to. No, we're gonna we're gonna mute it for them so they can't hear it. So this one's just for us. They just hear our reactions to it, but not the song. Mm, I like this breakdown. <laughs> First of all, at, uh, at at three minutes and 55 seconds, I think that might be the longest punk song I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah, I loved it. When I first started playing it, I was like, I was like four minutes. Like, this is a very long song for a, for a punk song. And I was like, oh, it's got like a it's got like a 30 second intro before they even start singing. And then there's like a guitar solo um, and they repeat they repeat the chorus one more time than I think a typical punk song would. Um, but also, I like how. Uh, you know, we, we listen to we listen to uh, the song Laz by the Quilt Club, which is the song about Laz Rojas. 
And, you know, not to say that that was like the fucking pinnacle of lyrics or anything like that, but, you know, in that song, you know, it's kind of, it's sort of like a, the lyrics are kind of like a poetic interpretation of Laz Rojas. But I like how this song is just like literally just, it's it's just like the, the song at the end of a movie in the 80s that just recaps the plot. It's just like, it's just, the lyrics are just the Wikipedia article about him. There's still something really sad, though, about that line. Like, I find that very, very haunting and very moving. The $50,000 in an early grave. Like, that's there's something really affecting about that. And also that the like the like almost animalistic nature of the chanting of, you know, uh, Forrest Ray Colson was a friend of mine. Forrest Ray Colson was a friend of mine. Uh, read about it in the newspaper today and it made me sad. Read about it in the newspaper and it made me sad. Like, I read the news today, oh boy. There was a man who dressed up like a death trooper and robbed a bunch of grocery stores and then he had a shootout with the police and got shot in the head. But that's what's even more pathetic about it is that it wasn't even a shootout. He just like walked out of the bank room and just got shot in the fucking temple. Yeah, that was that's that's kind of like the whole that's the whole thing that makes it kind of almost sadder than some of these other stories where like the fact that it was so it was so truncated. It was so like I this guy is going to become this notorious figure and he's going to have this whole crazy life story. And it's like, nope, he's fucking dead. It's like immediately dead. Like Richard McCaslin had a very tragic ending and very tortured human being. But, you know, he his 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 life story and his journey as the Phantom Patriot, you know, took place over years and years. Um, This dude was just like, I got an idea. Just just fucking dead, which is almost sadder to me. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. There's a there's a simple finality to Forrest Ray Colson's life that is impressively bleak. Yeah, just in a in a in a prison of uh in a in a prison of his own mind. You know, in in a in a world where the things that he was going through were not understood, were not dealt with or acknowledged socially, and we're, we're not. Um, we're not something that you could ever feel comfortable confiding in anybody else about. So, you know, you were just kind of locked in your head with these things. And obviously that had catastrophic effects on people for years, whether, whether, you know, people dealing with mental illness that were just treated like these fucking psychos that were just thrown into mental institutions and treated like shit. People who, you know, committed suicide because they just didn't understand what the fuck was wrong with them and nobody else understood or cared. Um, you know, extreme examples like this, where the only way that you could sort of let some of that pressure out was by doing a truly bizarre act to attempt to reckon with it in some way. Um, and you know, part of that is part of that. You can just say like, Oh, we just weren't there yet. We hadn't discovered these things, you know, medical advancement hadn't happened. And that's true. But part of it was just literally that society just didn't allow for those things to be, to be, um, examined, which is fucked up that so many people had to live just, and not that people don't now, but people had to live just these abject nightmares of lives. And there was just, there was no release from it. Yeah. It's fucking depressing as shit. I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Andrew Price. This has been Deep Cuts. If you'd like to find me on the internet, you can do so. TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter, xDaveBakerX. But more importantly, please go buy Everyone is Tulip. Please go buy Everyone is Tulip. Please go buy Everyone is Tulip, my new graphic novel from Dark Horse Comics, written by myself, illustrated by Nicole Gu, colored by Ellie Hall. If we haven't talked about it on here before, if you haven't paid attention, it's about a young actor who moves from Arizona to Los Angeles trying make it in the world of Hollywood, and when she gets here, she realizes shit ain't that easy. Then she gets sucked up into the high-stakes world of YouTube performance art, which is a real thing. The book's kind of about uh, drawing lines in the sand, then being forced to cross them. It's about uh, how far would, would are you willing to go to get what you want, and uh, what, what artistic compromises are you willing to make along the way. Please go buy Everyone is Tulip. Or you can read it for free on everyonestulip.com. Andrew, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me at, um, your local, um, Gelson's where I will be in the, in the, um, probiotic, um, smoothie aisle dressed as a, um, post-apocalyptic death trooper, um, about to hold up the entire store so that I can walk away with, uh, all of the kale I can eat. 
And you can also find me at dapricerights.com where you can get my book, Deadbolt AI Private Eye, or you can get my other book, Shitty Tulip. (laughs) What if I just quickly did that? I just like, I just drew like stick figures and did a whole book. And then I just started selling it like alongside yours. (laughs) I kind of love that idea. Uh, and also, also, you know, uh, first of all, you can get, you can get some deep cuts merch. You can get t-shirts. You can get coffee mugs. You can get, uh, hats. You can get baby onesies with, uh, glorious deep cuts designs on them by going to deepcutspod.com and clicking on store and, uh, it'll take you to the deep cuts merch shop. Um, or you can just go to, uh, bitly.com slash deep cuts merch. It'll take you to the same place. Um, you can get, uh, separately, um, cause they're, we produce them ourselves. Uh, you can get a deep cuts mystery treehouse investigation agency patch. Um, you can get that at any of our websites. You can get it at Dave's website. You can get it at my website. You can get it at deepcutspod.com. Um, also, you know, follow us on, uh, you, on our various social channels, um, where, you know, we post content. Um, aside from the podcast and we kind of post different content on all of our different channels. So it's kind of like worth it to follow us on everything. Um, so you can go to our YouTube channel, which is, you know, we, we post the episodes there. Um, but we're also, we'll also just periodically be uploading cool video content that you just won't be able to see anywhere else. More like long form video content. Um, you can follow us on Facebook. Uh, where we post sort of reaction videos where we kind of watch clips from old movies and things like that and kind of talk about them. Um, you can also join our Facebook group, the Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group, where, uh, you know, we have a bunch of fans and we talk about stuff. We, we, we discuss episodes. We, you know, share memes related to the show. We talk about things that aren't related to the show that are kind of just tangentially, uh, related to our interests. People suggest episode ideas that we do. Um, you can also follow us on TikTok uh, at Mystery Treehouse, where we do sort of like short form explainers, like mini micro versions of the podcast. So like we'll take stories that aren't long enough to really do a full episode about um, and we'll do like a three minute explainer on it. So, uh, you know, you can follow us on all these different social channels where you get a bunch of additional deep cuts content that you can't get anywhere else. Deep Cuts is a production by Boy Genius Media. If you'd like to find this show and others like it, please visit boygeniusmedia.com or deepcutspod.com. If you want to join in on post-episode discussions, please join the Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group. Finally, subscribe to our YouTube channel for additional video content. The incidental music for this episode was created by the Dead Boy Detectives.